Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Town of Vail and hosted by Manor Vale Lodge, important partners of the 2018 Vail Dance Festival. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Good morning and welcome to uh, the Festival Forums. Uh, we're so excited to give you a sneak peek at one of the um, works that will be going here at the Vail Dance Festival during its 30th anniversary season. My name is Michael Breeden. And I'm Rebecca Ferraro. And we are former Miami City Ballet dancers. And we are now the hosts of the podcast Conversations on Dance. So we're here at the festival conducting forums like this, also recording episodes with festival artists. So you can find us on iTunes. And we will be um, publishing these episodes in the coming weeks. So be sure to look out for that. We're so lucky today to be joined by two people with deep ties to the works of Merce Cunningham, Abby Sieveli and Melissa Tugut. Thank you guys for coming out today. Thanks, Thanks for having us. So before we get started, we want to let you all know that we will be opening the floor to questions once we've finished our little segment today. So if you have anything in mind, hang on to it and we will get to it. So um, Melissa, let's start with you. Can you tell us about your beginnings in dance and what drew you to the work of Merce Cunningham? Um. Well, I started dancing when I was three um, <laughs> with tap, actually, um, which is actually part of what drew me to Merce, too. And even when he was teaching class, he would often be tapping his feet at the bottom of the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, the initial thing that drew me to Merce um, when I was in college in Miami, actually, I went oh. to New World. <laughs> uh, my second year there, I did a Cunningham piece, and right away I was like, oh, this feels like home. Um, and the two dancers that staged the work really pushed me to go to the Cunningham studio in New York. So the rest is kind of history. <laughs> so Abby, your yes. turn. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, what drew you to delve so deeply into uh, Mercy's work from a scholarly perspective? Okay, so I started as an intern uh, in 2003 for the Cunningham Dance Foundation. I kind of worked my way uh, up very thoroughly through every sort of aspect of what was going on with the foundation at that time Um, and eventually got a paying gig with the company um, (laughs) as uh, assistant to the then executive director Trevor Carlson and also as an administrative assistant to Merce himself and um, I then moved on to become the eventually the director of special projects at the time the company was doing a lot of residencies, mm-hmm. large-scale residencies at places like uh, the Barbican and um, at the Melbourne International Arts Festival. So um, then I took a break and came back um, in 2011. Um, Merce at that time, um, the, the company was disbanding, and all of the sets and costumes were acquired by the Walker Arts Center, and I spent three years um, cataloging lots of unitards. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then uh, still felt a bit unresolved in terms of my whole relationship to the history that I had devoted so much time to um, in my early years. 
and so decided to take part like personal pilgrimage, part historical research journey to um, retrace the steps of the Merce Cunningham Dance Company's 1964 world tour. It's uh, 30 cities in 14 countries. And I eventually, um, it's still an open-ended project, but I uh, did about two-thirds of it. Um, now I'm doing um, an archival studies program at the University of British Columbia um, so that I can continue to help artists preserve and document their work. So, yeah, that's that's all pretty the incredible. trajectory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Merce was one of the great dance revolutionaries of the 20th century. What elements of his work do you feel um, made him one of the all-time greats? Well, the obvious one is the separation of dance and music. Um, which more people that I work with now are kind of working that way. Um, not as intensely as Merce did, mm -hmm. um, but a lot of the people I work with, we would develop material and then see how it fits to the music rather than choreographing to the music. So he was def that's definitely a huge influence of Merce. Um, for me, I think also the complexity of the movement itself um, there's no, you don't assume a certain way of doing anything. Um, after working with Merce and then going to work with some other people, occasionally they would be like, oh, well, it'd be easier if we turned this way. And I'm like, I, I wouldn't even, I don't even think that way anymore. I'm like, mm -hmm. which way do you want me to turn? Because <laughs> you could turn either way. <laughs> and you just figure it out, which is very Merce. Right. Um, and the separation of legs, torso, arms, and even head separate from the torso movement. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of complexity, I think, is something that is um, a, a gift he's kind of given. Mm -hmm. Could you expand a little more on what you mentioned about music and his choreography? How did he make those two come together, and how were they separate, like you were mentioning? Well, his collaborations with John Cage, um, they would work independently of each other and just come together during the performance. And then that continued through the history of the company with all the different artists he collaborated with. So um, Merce would say, I'm making a 20-minute dance, and the composer would make a score for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And they would happen in the same at the same time in the same space. And the similar collaborations with artists for costumes and set design mm -hmm. and lighting. Yeah. He also seemed to, I know we'll probably talk more about collaboration, but just um, from the perspective, again, that I feel like I gained through um, cataloging these sets and costumes and seeing this mega arc um, of over 60 years worth of work um, is like this malleable approach to collaboration. So when he was working with Robert Rauschenberg in the early days, Rauschenberg was the resident designer as, as well as stage manager. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a very familial kind of relationship, not just a make this and then go away kind of um, relationship, whereas you know, then with Jasper Johns, who was the artistic advisor, it's a very different kind of title. He wasn't um, doing the same kind of like sweeping the floor for nails and other things that might harm the dancer's bare feet that, that Rauschenberg was doing. So I think it's this idea of um, being really flexible in his approach to his relationship with other artists and not just being stuck on one kind of engagement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we so. definitely want to get into this talk about uh, sort of cross-discipline um, artistic collaborations because that's something that comes up a lot here in mm -hmm. Vail yeah. um, and that's something that Merce was always at the forefront of. Why do you think that that was such an important part of his creative impulse? I think because it 
um, allowed for creativity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he always said yes, mm-hmm. generally. <laughs> um, and then you figure out how to make it happen. And so it, it allowed him to get out of his own um, habits. I think also, um, you know, there are other people in this room who could also speak to different rela- their different relationships to Merce, but just being involved with him from a more administrative perspective and seeing um, sort of his daily uh, routine and whatnot. I actually, um, one of my early responsibilities at the time, Merce was still um, riding to work in a car that staff members drove. So some my first experience driving in New York was driving Merce Cunningham to work, <laughs> um, which was a little, it, it was great. Um, but uh, he was, from my experience, an endlessly curious person. Yeah. So even in the route to work from his, where he lived in Chelsea, um, I remember one time we were just driving down the same route and you could not diverge from that route. Like if you took a detour, it was not good. Mm. Um, <laughs> but him like looking up at a building that had like different colors of bricks and, and making this observation, well, it looks like a million fishes with googly eyes or something like that. And just, you know, his awakeness, his alertness to these kinds of details that, you know, I just had like my blinders on completely. Um, I think it really speaks to his his personality and just Absolutely. endless kind yeah. of I feel um, like he exploration. Felt like everyone had the potential to teach him something mm-hmm. or to show him a new way of doing or seeing something. Yeah. What other kind of conversations did you have in the car with him? Is there any <laughs> <laughs> anything in particular that stands out? Um. I think just in general, what I learned from him really early on as a person, um, and again, I know that I was encountering him at a very different point in his life than somebody like Carolyn Brown. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, I was so impressed that even as an intern that he would um, say good morning to interns and ask like, how are you? And not just like, "Uh, how are you? But really be genuinely interested in you as a person. And it, it just made me realize that if you reach that level of excellence and greatness, that you can be a good person still, <laughs> um, and that you can make time for the younger generations. Um, and so, yeah, I would just in general say like... Um, He's a highly evolved person, I think. Yeah, yeah. highly evolved, highly <laughs> evolved. Um, he could be really funny. Um, I was just trying to think of memories that I could share with this podcast, and I remember... Um, they had a gala. I don't know if you were. I don't know if you were in the company yet, but it was um, honoring Robert Rauschenberg, and Jasper Johns was also there. And Merce had been signing autographs all night, and he got tired of signing his own name, so he started signing Lauren Bacall. Oh my <laughs> gosh! <laughs> this is little moment of sassiness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was doing an event. I think you were wearing you were modeling costumes that night but anyway sorry (laughs) there was another funny story Um, I was an understudy for the company and he would call us the rugs repertory understudy group and (laughs) so the rugs were performing at the performing arts library in New York and he was like oh performing in a library is such a novelty (laughs) (laughs) he was like waiting all night to like come back to work and tell us that joke (laughs) 
Um, so let's rewind for a second and go back to your cataloging of unitards. We <laughs> want to hear a little bit more about that project and what inspired you to go through um, all of those sets and costumes and what you gleaned from that experience. So the walker had already um, been uh, arranging this transfer of materials before I came on, and uh, the Mellon Foundation uh, gave a very sizable grant to the um, institution, and my position was part of that. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a fellowship in the visual art department, but um, I did most of my cataloging through, I had like two bosses. Um, I did most of my work through the registration department, and they are the ones who would normally take artworks, and um, when they come into the museum, they would do the processing of, of the artworks, do a condition report, house them properly, all of that. Um, so it was a completely new experience for me. I had the, the historical background of all of, well, but a lot of the earlier works, um, I had never seen the costumes before. Mm -hmm. um, so everything, and the decision that the curators made with the foundation was to take everything, um, set and costume wise, and then the other materials at the New York Public Library. Um, so things were coming in on pallets, loads <laughs> um, and um, everything was going into painting storage and the museum I think Merce kind of had his he was um, he had passed away by that time but even then I think he was having like some fun with the museum's regular infrastructure because everything had to be rethought in terms of the way the database the fields that were in the database they didn't have like set decor uh, fields in the database and things like that um, the walker at that time had a few sort of uh, wearable art pieces, but in general, um, they didn't have that kind of material. So um, we had to bring in textile conservators and um, object conservators um, to work with all of this new stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was a fascinating, I mean, it was an exercise in repetition. <laughs> um, but I think that that kind of level of repetition breeds like a connoisseurship or um, you start to develop a real sense of, um, like I would start to get fixated on like, ooh, this weave of the wool unitard from the 50s that he wore is like very different from the Capizio circa 1980 whatever. <laughs> so, um, and also you can see the relationship. There's a lot that objects can tell you when you look up really, you look at them really closely. Mm -hmm. um, they still had makeup stains on them. Um, the, the idea was not to totally scrub those signs of wear away. They, they wanted to stabilize things so that they were safe to um, exist in the museum storage, but um, they had uh, like pills where the dancers had moved and in, in certain costumes like in Mercer's solo costume some of them had one knee more worn than the other which then made you think like hmm, maybe I should go back and look at the choreography and see mm. if he did a lot of knee work or something <laughs> like that um, yeah so uh, I think it was a singular experience that will never happen again I mean that kind of body of work um, was extremely unique to have that breadth and chronology and to still have like dancers around who could um, wear the costumes, talk about the experience of performing in the works, and all of that, um, yeah, it was it was an extraordinary experience. Wow. And it's over four thousand set and costume pieces. Wow. So uh, were those 
how much did that relate to uh, the work that Merce was creating? As you were talking about music, it doesn't, um, it, it would be a separate thing. So for the sets and costumes, was that also um, completely separate until kind of last minute? Or as last minute as a set and costume can be? <laughs> I mean, as a dancer, I didn't know what you were wearing. What we were wearing until we did a fitting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there's a gray area, though. I mean, um, I don't know. It still has to kind of work. I'm right. Sure yeah. I think it's Waystation that had the pods. They had to kind of plan out where mm-hmm. to go under them. Yeah. But I, I don't know that they really worked with them in the studio, but mm-hmm. they were like marked out so they would know where to go in and out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know we'll talk about scenario, but I think, um, you know, there are several of those pieces where I know the one that Jeannie Steele War, which we nicknamed the bean in mm. our cataloging because it's basically like she has no access to her arms. Um, <laughs> I think that... Which you'll see tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that probably that, you know, there had to have been some discussion. The safety issue. I'm yeah. Sure yeah, so it wasn't like kamikaze, you know. Here you go. Here you go. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah, and tonight's dancers haven't heard the score yet. So, so let's go let's into that. that. We definitely <laughs> want to talk about that. Um, so when they were creating, let's, let's talk about John Cage, for instance, with uh, mm-hmm. Merce. When they were creating, did they have any discussion about the mood or um, point of departure that they were going for? Or was it just total, um, you're on this page, I'm on that, and we're going to combine it and see how it goes? I believe it was totally separate, but mm-hmm. they were partners, so I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's speculation as to how much they talked about mm-hmm. things. But... Um, I think they seemed pretty um, committed to their artistic choice in that way. Right. So, yeah. Just as an observer, um, watching rehearsals, like, they rehearsed in silence. <laughs> stopwatch. And with a stopwatch. And so you go up and these incredibly um, complex things are happening and it's all happening in silence. And I think you all would, when you timed it, like, would have this amazing internal Within sense seconds, of timing. Um, yeah. So uh, there was one time we were running biped. I believe the time is forty minutes, and Mercy had kind of fallen asleep a little bit. <laughs> we were also we, like, we were like, this was a terrible run, but he clocked it at exactly forty minutes, and for him it was amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> How do you? Learn that sense of internal rhythm. Is that repetition? Just repetition. You do it, and then you do it again, and mm-hmm. then you do it again, and then you do it again. Um, he, I mean, we don't dance to the music, but we definitely have a very strong sense of rhythm and time. Mm-hmm. Um, often, he would have a lot of bashing on the desk, <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, really just doing it again. And I joke sometimes. Merce would be like, "Let's do it one more time." And then we'll do it again. <laughs> yeah, and then like five more times, probably. Did you ever have instances in a performance where you went over the designated time you had? Yes. Sometimes <laughs> biped was one of the ones, because um, once it came into the repertory, it never left. So it was done a lot. Mm-hmm. So we got to know the score a little bit. And we're like, oh, we're late. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear it, and sometimes the cello would have to go. But it, it was very rare. And um, you would hear those sort of signs, and you're like, okay, we have to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And so you'd get back on. That is really interesting. Um, Let's talk about his creative process. How much would he tell the dancers in terms of his idea and inspiration in order to um, inform the work that you were doing? Was that something he did a lot or? Very little, but he, usually it was like, okay, you'd start with the legs, right foot forward, 
for me, it was often your other right foot, <laughs> right and left. Um, but and it would be like bent or straight, and then he'd give you a facing, and then he would add the torso, and then layer other things. Or and sometimes you would have you would learn two phrases, and then you would have to do them together, meaning like um, maybe he would teach the men a phrase, and then you would learn a phrase, and then he would make that into a duet. A lot of mm. different ways, but he made every step. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of inspiration, um, you would sometimes learn the title of a piece, which would kind of give you a clue into maybe what he was thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't dictate what it should represent. Um, at the same time, he would occasionally use imagery, but that was occasional. It was mm-hmm. usually really directed physically through the body. Um, for example, once he was making a piece called Eye Space on me as a rug, and I was supposed to bring my um, one arm and then the other arm to front low straight, <laughs> but flicker your elbows like um, the light on water to get there. So I was like, okay, what does that mean? So <laughs> there was occasionally imagery right. like that in terms of how to execute a movement physically, but not really dramatically. Sure. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So back to his relationship with music, um, when did this sort of idea to divorce music and dance come about? Was that pretty much um, integral to his work from the beginning? Very early on, yeah. I mean, he met John Cage um, in school at Cornish College. So um, I think that whole idea, and I think um, the whole idea of Cage's working with like the I Ching and this idea of chance, came through Christian Wolf, I believe, yeah. who parents, sh- had a, a publishing company that uh, published a, a, a version of the I Ching that he gave to Cage, um, which is an amazing story. Um, and yeah, that this was happening from quite early on. But I think, again, from a music perspective as opposed to a dance perspective, you know, when you didn't have bodies involved, you could make, you could be a, a bit more radical. But mm-hmm. I think Merce, as a dancer himself, was protective of of the dancers' bodies in terms of he didn't want people to like smack into each other or mm-hmm. do something that you know would hurt them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So let's talk a little bit about scenario that's going to be um, here at the International Evenings of Dance. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the Ballet Abbey? Sure. Um, so it was uh, premiered in 1997 at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And um, Ray Kawakubo of Comme des Garçons uh, designed the costumes. And that year, she had done a a ready-to-wear line um, for the spring and summer of 1997 of very similar kinds of lumps and bumps costumes. I think the collection was called, like, Body Meets Dress, Dress Meets Body, which kind Mm. of would have been an interesting title for the piece. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And um, the... The staging, I mean, Melissa can talk more about it, but the actual physical look of the uh, the stage was completely different from a sort of typical kind of theatrical orientation. So they had um, like fluorescent lighting from above, mm-hmm. which was extremely white. I think one In of the dancers, floor. yeah, one of the dancers, because I did, um, so the walker did uh, what they called a research exhibition around this collaboration. And... Um, I interviewed some of the original cast members, and it might have been Tom Cayley. I can't remember. Somebody, uh, or it's Jeannie. Anyway, somebody <laughs> said that it was kind of like dancing in a microwave. Um, <laughs> so it was 
disorienting, having all of that uh, light. light. Yeah. yeah. And um, Takahisa Kusugi did the music, um, which is a kind of, I think it's wave code A to Z, and it's a, a sort of violin-inspired kind of piece. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I think that's, that's the basics. Um, the costumes are outrageous. As yeah, we, I wish we could wear them, but they're all in a museum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah. So, Melissa, yeah. could you talk a little bit about the staging process as you um, set yes. this on the dancers here? Mm-hmm. Um, Bale is unique and crazy. <laughs> Everyone kind of gets together at the last minute, and we all seem to manage to pull it off every year. <laughs> we rehearsed a little bit in New York, only with some people. Um, Damien and I really wanted to do something with a bigger cast mm-hmm. because so often, um, because of the nature of the festival, it's just easier to do solos and duets. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted to do something bigger. And so it's a cast of 14, <laughs> seven couples. And I taught almost everyone separately. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> goodness. Um, but we've had, I think, two or three rehearsals with everyone mm-hmm. now. They're, they look great. I'm really excited. Um, so it was different for a lot of them. Um, the majority of them are ballet dancers, uh, so mm. using their backs in a very different way and um, their sense of time in mm. a very different way, the use of coordination in a very different way. Um, that said, their sense of line is beautiful. Mm. So you know, there are things that work and other things that they really have to work at. Uh, which is the nature of the festival, too. Damien mm-hmm. wants to give us challenges um, to try different things, like I'm tapping on Monday with Michelle Doran. <laughs> Yay! Um, so really? we're all kind of out of our <laughs> element a little bit, which is exciting for us. Um, but the staging... Um, fortunately, I was also able to um, use two dancers that I dance with a lot from Pam Tanowitz Dance, Jason Collins and Victor Lozano, who um, study regularly at the Cunningham... Um, take Cunningham class so I had them kind of as leaders a little Mm -hmm. bit and um, yeah uh, it was just kind of one person at a time and adding it together and then eventually we had seven couples and I was like okay these are your cues let's see what happens and no major (laughs) um, crashes or anything so (laughs) and then we just keep we've just kept running it and everything kind of like minute things kind of work their way out Mm -hmm. um, because they're all professionals mm-hmm. um and i've given them some of the back exercises just to help um as they work on their own to kind of connect the technique mm-hmm. with the repertory which they said really helps um yeah so you mentioned those exercises what else do you do in with such a short period of time to help these ballet dancers who are so out of their element get a crash course on cunningham and the style well partly also why i chose the um, sections that I chose were because it's the same phrase repeated over and over again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that which, helps. Which helps. Um, and then, so I would watch them do it and then have to kind of help connect why it doesn't feel the same as it looks maybe when they're watching me do it. So sometimes I'm like, step really big. If that doesn't do it, I'm like, okay. It's because we work in a particular way where we have our weight on two feet Mm -hmm. rather than transferring from one to the next. And so helping them understand how to move their pelvis through space or where to initiate the movement in a place that's different than what they're used to. Mm -hmm. And then you see these aha moments where they're like, oh, okay. 
Um, <laughs> and then at first it's really kind of daunting and a little bit scary, like they feel slow. And I'm like, no, you realize like it took him months to make all this stuff. Like I just have it already. Because, mm-hmm. But it, I had to learn it at one point too. Um, and so you see it building and then all of a sudden you see the fear go away and you see the um, excitement of, oh, I'm, I, I'm figuring this out and now I need to try that. Oh, I could push it in this way, which is really cool to see. Mm-hmm. So Abby, mm. if we could go back and talk about your major independent research project um, <laughs> regarding the 1964 world tour. How did that idea even come about? Why was this um, of particular interest to you? Uh, so the 64 tour um, was a really pivotal moment in the company's life. Um, they kind of totally transformed them from um, a fledgling group um, to uh, getting these rave reviews in Europe and coming back to the U.S. just in a complete at a completely different level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it also marked Rauschenberg had been the primary. Um, uh, decor mm-hmm. and costume collaborator until that time, and it, it also marked kind of a split with him for mm-hmm. a while as well. Um, but I think I just wanted to find out. I was doing a lot of interviews for the Walker for their um, oral history style interviews with Cunningham collaborators and whatnot, um, and just realizing that the people involved in that tour um, who could talk about that um, experience, they were performing behind the Iron Curtain. Um, in uh, then Czechoslovakia and um, also in Poland. Um, They went all over Asia. Um, So it was just this incredibly rich moment. Um, And a lot of the people who were participating in it were getting older, if not already gone. Um, And it, again, coincided with a kind of personal need that I had in myself to um, process my relationship to this work that I had devoted my life to up to that point and kind of take like an eat, pray, love uh, (laughs) pilgrimage of sorts. Um, But for financial reasons and also just for work reasons, um, it was impossible to do it all at one in one go. Um, Arranging meetings with people who don't uh, have email or, (laughs) you know, trying to find archives that don't exist (laughs) or that kind of thing. It just takes time. So... Um, I ended up doing, I believe, four separate chunks of the tour. Um, went all through um, I, India, uh, Japan, and Thailand. That was a segment, and then um, several several trips to Europe as well. Um, so yeah, and it's it's an ongoing thing. I'm in school right now, um, trying to do this archives work. So we'll see, you know, what what it becomes, but. Yeah, um, it truly felt like, A, I have so much respect for these. Well, I was on tour with the company um, in more recent years, but, oh, my God, just the brutal nature of touring, mm-hmm. um, especially at a time when, you know, you didn't have email and you, you were sending letters back and forth to the next place and there weren't air conditioners and, <laughs> oh, I mean, no Skype. No, I, I, it's, like, crazy. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's... That's also fascinating. That's <laughs> the project. So just for our last question, is there a Merce work that is either lost or not performed very often that you would like to see come back to the stage or be done more? 
I don't know. I mean, partly why I wanted to do scenarios because um, I don't think, well, we're not doing the full piece, but I don't think that it was performed again fully after it went out of the repertory, or maybe it is being done for the centennial. As a yeah. dancer in the company, you, you wanted to wear those because it wasn't a unitard. <laughs> <laughs> Super fun. Yeah, they're actually like these... Um, it's like wearing multiple small sleeping bags, which you can imagine with the white hot lights yeah. and all of well, the movement that you're doing. I got to wear them doing. once, which was really fun. Yeah, <laughs> they're like these little sort of pillows that are... It's real down, so there were feathers everywhere. Oh my um, gosh, in, <laughs> um, When they were being processed, but... Um, yeah. Think of a piece. I mean, the piece that I always really wanted to do was quartet, but we got to bring that back during the legacy tour, so I felt fulfilled in that. <laughs> Wonderful. Do we have any questions from our audience? Maybe? Yes, right here. Yeah. Um, well, Merce used chance to create material, but then it didn't really enter the studio with us. Um, he'd already kind of made those decisions behind the scenes, and he would use that teaching behind the scenes. And so um, he would ask those questions while he was figuring out those things. And then in the studio, he really just dealt with the dancers and the problems that he had kind of created for himself for the studio and figured them out with us. So once something was set, and we rehearsed it a ton, that's how it was. So it, it didn't change again later. There are pieces where we had some freedom in terms of space or, um, for example, like split sides, there's a section called the fast twos and we could go anywhere in space, but the phrase is set and the timing is set. So there were certain choices, but that wasn't really chance by the time it got to us. So it was really a tool Merce used on the way to choreographing a finished piece rather than something that still existed in the finished work. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But there could have been more chance in the music side of things as it was being performed. Yeah. You know, Merce was all, they, the live music was an essential component mm -hmm. of um, the performances. So um, there's always the eventuality of some, something happen different, happening different uh, each yeah. night. Like some scores, they would have the different order every night for the things they would play. So you would hear a different thing. Wow. Oh. But the stopwatch yeah, stayed true. The <laughs> stopwatch doesn't lie. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, why is it important for you? You mentioned that the dancers uh, have not heard the music yet um, here at the festival. Why is it important for you as a repetitor to continue that tradition? Um, I think it's exciting for them to have an authentic experience in that way. And we have a tech later today, which I'm sure will probably play it to make mm -hmm. sure for um, the stage manager <laughs> to cue it to start and end correctly. But that'll be the first time. Um, they'll hear it and you don't want to get used to something and that that kind of experience is another um, layer to the live performance that I think as a performer is exciting. Some people really block it out and some people really listen to it even though it doesn't in directly inform what you're doing. Um, it can kind of add a different tone maybe but um, yeah I just wanted to give them the real experience of yeah. that. I'm sure it makes them nervous as ballet yeah. dancers. Well, and give them more time to count their five threes over and over again without being distracted. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, one of the things 
<laughs> younger people with their computer and so forth. And I kind of came to fall in love with them and understanding the, the Charles Atlas films. Uh -huh. So I wonder if you could say like how much is film and also if you what it was like, how he worked with a filmmaker, which is very hard to do with chance because mm -hmm. film doesn't. Right. <laughs> Did you work on any projects when he was Ocean filming? Yeah. with Charlie. Um, that really, uh, the dance already existed for Ocean. And so Charlie would come to rehearsal to kind of map out where he was gonna maybe put cameras um, while we shot that film. Um, that wasn't really a piece made for film. Um, so I didn't really have the experience of making a piece for film with Merce. But, um, Merce's interests were definitely spiked when like another element came into the room. Um, he was very engaged always when there was like a new way to look at something. I remember Elliot Kaplan, who was another filmmaker who worked with him, um, uh, did a workshop with students at Dia Beacon um, uh, when the company was doing performances there. Um, and I remember him talking about uh, mapping out with tape the actual visible space that the camera would include. And um, I think, I remember him just telling the story about like how exciting that was to Merce, that he had constraints. Constraints yeah. were like possibility to him. Yeah. In the um, studio, we would film it for archival purposes, and so the corners of the space weren't seen, so that's... Yeah. Like there, we'd have a line, a diagonal line um, from downstage somewhat up that we couldn't now go into so that the camera would capture everything. So we had to adapt to that in the studio. Yeah. Was there music for those archival ones? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> and even now, like if you watch a video, um, we all just kind of instinctively turn the sound off <laughs> to go back and learn stuff, even if it's a performance uh, video. <laughs> funny. That's interesting. Uh, any other questions? Okay. Oh, right here. Yeah. The Cunningham Trust gave me an initial, uh, it was actually, I think it was the inaugural um, uh, special projects grant. Um, I also got some funding from, um, it. I found it really hard to get funding to travel. Uh, it was a lot easier, I'm doing air quotes for podcast listeners, <laughs> um, to get money to go to an, a specific archive, mainly in the US. So um, I did get funding from the Getty Research Institute to look at David Tudor's papers, because he was on the tour, and also got a John Cage research grant from Northwestern. Uh, that might not be the exact name, but it's a John Cage grant, mm -hmm. because some of his papers are at Northwestern University. Um, but Otherwise, it was self-funded. <laughs> um, I would come back to the U.S. and do a bit of work um, and then go out and basically moved my stuff into my parents' garage <laughs> while I was doing it. Uh -huh. I was going to say, it sounds like a fantastic dissertation talk I've been doing for me. <sighs> Are you doing a master's now? Uh, I'm doing this archival work because, again, I feel like um, I want to continue... Uh, working with artists who are still making work today, and also with you know choreographers from the past. Um, I just feel like 
there's a chronic need for people who understand both sides of the um, artistic practice from the creative side as well as um, have like the archival language and um, skills to um, pull it all together. So yeah, we'll see, but yeah. Well, thank you all so much for coming out today and we hope you enjoy tonight's performance of Scenario. Tonight. Yes, Good. it's tonight. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us for this special episode from the Vail Dance Festival. While we are here in Vail, we will be recording live events like this one and recording interviews with festival artists. Subscribe to Conversations on Dance through Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app to be notified when new content from Vail is published. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for behind-the-scenes content. This episode was brought to you by the Town of Vail, a sponsor helping to host the Vail Dance Festival in our community.